0: In Michigan just yesterday, hundreds of protesters, some of them with long guns, descended on the state capitol.
1: How did they come up with this number of six feet? I think they just pulled it out of their rear end.
2: Maybe it's five, maybe it's three and a half, maybe it's
1: eight, I don't know, but why six? this two-tree stimulus bill and the amount of money that's in it for educational institutions, HBCUs, like many universities and colleges, have been greatly impacted as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. And so how are they faring?
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Progressive Southern Theologians podcast, a show where two progressive theologians working in the South gather and discuss matters of faith, politics, and other social issues. I'm Mark Boswell, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Jamie McLeod. We're both glad to be with you this week in yet another installment of the Shelter-in-Place Time Warp. Jamie, how are you, and are you as antsy as the state of Georgia to get things reopened?
0: I don't think that's possible, though I will say the state of Alabama reopened a little bit today as well, and it would seem that uh, that folks were very, very excited about that. My wife was out in the community Earlier today, and said folks were lining the sidewalks and visiting restaurants and getting smoothies together, and it uh, it was uh, we, people. It was very very busy out there today. So people were antsy to get out. I guess I'm not.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I know that's a thorny, thorny topic and different states are arguing about that and doing different things. Uh, We will talk about some of that today on the show. Today, dear listeners, we are turning our attention first to a group of ornery protesters up in the great state of Michigan who want their state reopened, proving yet again that it's not just Southerners who are haunted by the scary big government that these folks think is out to get them. We'll discuss what seems to be their death drive, along with some other bubbling right-wing extreme behavior from across the country. In our second segment, we'll turn our attention to the economy and consider yet another important part of our country that is getting hit by the downturn related to COVID, that being historically black colleges and universities. We'll continue these discussions as part of a larger theme that we've been tracking over the past few weeks of what it means to reimagine and rebuild our economy for a post-COVID world in a way that doesn't just settle for the dysfunctional way things have been. Lastly, we'll wind down our show, as always, with the segment we call our Front Porch Musings, where we muse about something from the week that we have found interesting or that is bringing us joy. And speaking of things that bring us joy, we have another song to share with you from friend of the podcast, Leanne Chambliss Armstrong, who's been writing and recording wonderful folk, Americana types of songs during the virus. And you'll hear that in between our first and second segments. You can hear more of her work on our previous episodes and also on her Instagram page, Leanne Armstrong. That's Anne with an E. Her Instagram page, again, is Leanne Armstrong. It's Anne with an E. Before we begin today, we'd like to ask that if you enjoy this podcast to do two things to help us out. First, please subscribe to the show in your podcast streaming app of choice. And second, please give it a five-star ranking. Doing these two simple things helps others to find our work, and we certainly do appreciate that. And if you want to follow more of our written work, please visit our website, ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com, and also check us out on Twitter and Facebook. And on that note, you can find our most recent publication in the latest installment of our Profiles in Leadership series featuring Taylor Pettit of Beth Shalom Synagogue in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We're thrilled for you to learn more about the important work that Taylor has done across the state of Louisiana and to hear more of her story about the impact that Reform Judaism has had on her journey to work on public matters and social justice. Thank you all again for the support. We hope you're doing well, and please enjoy the show. Jamie, in our first segment, we turn our attention to the state of Michigan, where hundreds of protesters have yet again converged on the state capitol, some of them wearing bulletproof vests and carrying assault rifles and generally looking like a character from a video game. In a now weeks long back and forth, these folks are, of course, demanding that the state be reopened, petulantly claiming that their constitutional rights are being infringed upon and that Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is being a tyrant. Never you mind that Michigan has had over 40,000 COVID cases and is one of the hardest hit states in the country. Did Whitmer indefinitely lock down the state in true dictatorial fashion, you might ask? Well, of course not. She simply extended the shelter-in-place order for two more weeks until May 15th, as did other governors across the country, including mine in the deep south state of Louisiana, where the virus has also hit particularly hard. We also know, as we discussed last week, that these movements in Michigan are not purely grassroots. Good old boys and girls who woke up and decided to go protest. One of the lead organizing groups has also been formerly known as Michigan Trump Republicans. And the protests have also been funded by the Michigan Freedom Fund, a group with ties to Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos. Jamie, we know this coincides with states like Georgia and Florida and Alabama attempting to reopen certain segments of their own economies. How do we think through both the very real unrest and economic pain that certain folks are legitimately feeling across the country? And at the same time, the jarring visual image of white men in military fatigues and assault rifles in the state capitol, in the gallery, trying to get into the legislative floor, clearly meaning to be an intimidating presence to lawmakers and the governor.
0: I found those images from from the Michigan Statehouse to be utterly terrifying. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine at all what that must have have felt like. There was one in particular where a guy strapped with an AR-15 was like yelling in the face of this um, state police officer with a mask on and and trying to keep proper social distance. And I just thought you have way more bravery than I have because I would be terrified if that was me, right? Yeah. Yeah there is a place for protest even if it's a protest that i disagree with i i am okay and i'm good with protest. like i think i think it's important especially for minorities to let their voices be heard in whatever way is is available to them this is not that at least it's not to me <laughs> this is this is a bunch of folks walking into a statehouse strapped to the teeth with, with with guns that could do a lot of damage and which have done a lot of damage in other scenarios. And we, we can recount those like a litany of town names or school names. Or, so there's something about this that feels fundamentally different than this is what democracy looks like, right? Um, yeah, sure, I, sure. I just think that there's something... It'd be easy to call it absurd because on one level it is but really it is something and to me it's something entirely different when you introduce guns and anger into into a scenario like that. to me that is that is fundamentally different uh, and, and so I I'm aware sort of how much this protest movement of 200 people in a state, is both garnering national media attention, garnering presidential attention, and getting more and more amped up as the weeks go along. And if it happens that when, when we do start to reopen state economies and there will be the, the inevitable um, spike in cases and the at least potential for things to get shut down again for a time, what happens then? Like what? What is to keep the guy who is strapped to his teeth and in the face of the state police officer from from taking it to the next step? Right. I, that's the piece that I don't I don't fully comprehend, and that part concerns me deeply. Especially when there are folks sort of on the sideline of the movement who are continuing to amp it up, who are continuing to shout it out. Uh, and so this is, this is very, very problematic to me.
2: Yeah. And I know that, I mean, I, I'm not, obviously I, I'm not a person who would be inclined to be in a group like that, or who shares the similar thought world of folks who would want to strap up that way and to go and to, to play this role in the state Capitol or to do this type of this public demonstration. I, I know that, but let me just state this, like it's, it's the end of a long week. And I'm weary, I'm just weary and 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 concerned about what is the this is not a very articulate thought, but just what is the point <laughs> as you as you've said, uh, that there are ways to protest, there are ways to to voice your frustration and anger and 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 I agree with you that I mean that that having that space within our democracy is important, and that also means, Uh, in a way, giving, um, not in a way, it does mean to, to make space for people from all sides of the political spectrum. And that's not some, for me to say that that's not some mealy mouth type of thing of like, there are much deeper and longer philosophical questions and conversations to be had around where the, you know, what types of public spaces we're talking about and the nature of the protest, and the nature of the language that's being used when it comes to speech or, and we can, we can sort of, Rope in this idea about going out with guns and the the military fatigues. That is a that is a type of public speech in and of itself in terms of a in a, a cultural way. And I'm just tired of it. I, you know, it it seems so tone deaf in terms of the suffering and the death that's happening across the country. And what often is the case with far I'm going to say right wing here with far right wing behavior like this is that it honestly does. Perform over the conservative folks that I know, and I do know a lot more than I probably knew previously. Um, both from well here in Louisiana, since I moved here to start working, but also from where I grew up, folks who are not conservative, folks who may have some philosophical, who may share some philosophical concerns about encroaching government or something like this, but who would also never in a million years go and do the things that these this handful, and it's, it's just a handful, the handful of people. Who, who dressed up like this and did this thing in Michigan. And again, it is important to remind those who are listening, and if you've not followed the story, not everyone who showed up were armed that day at the Capitol. It was a handful of those um, who gathered who were doing that. But I just, I feel like, again, it's, it's just tiresome. And that's, that's not to minimize the impact that something like this could have, Uh, or that it does have, but it's just tiring. And I I just want to say, like, grow up and behave, (laughs) you know, like, please. Uh, But to to segue here, speaking of wanting to tell people in public to grow up and behave, um, in the wake of these protests, President Trump tweeted out his support for the folks gathered on the Capitol, Uh, obviously knowing and having seen the images of the people, of the handful of folks who were in the military fatigues and who were carrying the assault rifles. Again, Into the gallery, the viewing gallery of the legislative floor, uh, President Trump tweets out his, his support of these folks in what is now becoming this ongoing feud he has with Governor Whitmer. And so the disturbing words in particular that resonated with me from the president's tweet was when he says that the folks gathered in that crowd were very good people. Now this isn't the first time that President Trump has described far right extremists as "quote very good people." Um, Jamie, do you want this is a, a softball pitch here? But do you want to take this up and tell us or remind us what's uh, Trump's history here of finding the moral value in uh, or calling you know folks very good who are associated with with what can very rightly be called you know far right behavior or extreme behavior or let's just name it what it is. I mean almost. I mean, terroristic behavior. These folks were meant to inspire fear and terror in face of our public legislators.
0: To be sure. Like, if you break down the word <laughs> terrorist behavior, like that would have instilled terror in me. I, just looking at yeah. the pictures yeah. instilled terror in me. <laughs> so, right. I mean, the answer is his, his history is, is not great. Uh, he has on on numerous occasions now seen an event like this, whether it was uh, here in Michigan or Charlottesville or any of the protests that had sort of sprung up around the nation uh, with 200 guys, mostly guys sitting in front of a state house yelling at people. Mm I mean, he, 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 he has thrown his support behind all those sorts of, uh, uh, right-wing movements and, and use that sort of language to like a qualifiable, very good people. That's the part that that is most troubling to me, I think, is it, it, because it normalizes this behavior. Yeah. Right. And it's not normal. There's nothing remotely normal about this behavior in this in this age that we are living in. And to really treat Governor Whitmer, the duly elected governor of Michigan and crazy people with guns on the same level and tell her, you know, you should get together with these folks and make a deal with them. I don't even know what that means. Setting that aside, it puts those two bodies on on the same level and they're just not. And I would say that if it was Brian Kemp in 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 Georgia or Kay Ivey here or right if it's 200 Crazy folks sitting outside your office, and and a governor, a state governor. You're not on the same level, and so don't try to put them on the same level because that's just that that is infuriating to me. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I am. <laughs> I'm I, I I quite. I, you know, I told you earlier. I am quite upset about this on just a number of levels. I think the chief one is that there's only one logical place that this is going to end up going at some point, right? Mm-hmm. The, that at some point, somebody's going to get dead, right? And I don't mm-hmm. know who it is, but I'm certain that if you are comfortable getting angry at state police holding an AR-15, then there is it's not a long jump for me between that and shooting somebody, right? And, and so I worry what happens. I have no idea who's going to win the election in November, but I, I worry what happens if if Trump does lose to Biden uh, and what are the reactions of the folks who are the scary people, right? Who are the two hundred folks who sit out in front of the Governor's mansion with guns? right? what What do they do next? right? after their if their leader has been dethroned for lack of a better term, like what comes next? And is it just outright anarchy? Violence. I really don't know, and neither does anybody else. That's the scary part. And so, to me, he's really playing with fire right now, and I think it's going to end up in a bad place at some point.
2: And I don't care how much someone loves Trump. You know, if the if the staunchest Trump supporter steps back, maybe maybe I'm going way too far by saying that. But if if someone steps back and looks at the, the, the history of Trump during the presidency and during his run for the presidency. Hardly ever has he been one to take the position of trying to defuse something and to minimize conflict and not stir it up or exacerbate it. Um, I have zero faith that if Trump was to lose the election, that he is not one tweet away from encouraging this type of thing from blowing up in his anger and his disappointment in his carelessness or recklessness from losing. And with one, you know, one assault rifle, one pull of the trigger away from something like that happening. It is highly disturbing uh, during just for history's sake, during the, his run for presidency, there was some association. I think it was David Duke of the KKK who has occupied leadership within the KKK in the past or some version of it came out and, and vocalized his support for Trump and said that Trump, the things that he was running for or uh, the, the platform that he was running on spoke to the desires and wishes of the Klan. And Trump had a very, when he was asked about this by a reporter back in 2015, 2016, probably uh, the response that he gave was very muddled and he, he did, he did not immediately come out and give like a wholehearted, um, Effort to, to distance himself from white supremacist movements. Now that's one thing that's disturbing enough. That was a uh, norm breaking enough to go back to the moment in Charlottesville when white nationalists gathered and counter demonstrators also gathered and violence erupted at the end of the day. Trump's first line was to come out and say that there were very good people he said on both sides, which implied that the white nationalist, Aryan supremacist, anti-semitic folk were also included in this cadre of very good people and again, it just does not give any faith that the the that the president will do the right thing or that the president will do what is necessary to to keep the extremities at bay and to try to have some sense of, of normalcy and peace and to make for peace when these types of things, like you said, are given uh, equal ground or equal standing with our established democratic institutions. All that to say, Jamie, I'm just going to hold my breath and um, I will humbly remember the amount of work that needs to be done between now and November and Reminding myself and anyone who's listening who has uh, similar political sympathies, which I imagine you will if you're listening to this podcast, um, that the stakes are high again as they were in 2016. But we we know fully and with clear eyes just how high the stakes are this time as well. We knew it in 2016. We've got to take this seriously in terms of the efforts and the work that need to be done between now and November not to mention all of the uh, concerns that are going to wrap around into this in terms of COVID and what elections are going to look like in November and what normalcy around elections is at that time. Um, and again, having good faith, there is something elemental and very important about the the public trust and the peaceful transfer of power from one governing administration to another. I think that's what I'm dancing around in all of this and I just wish I had more confidence that uh, current administration and President Trump would ins- would do all that they could to ensure that peaceful transfer of power if that happens in 2020 or if that happens in 2024, uh, if, it, if and when it goes back to the opposing party. Um, say what you will about past presidents um, with whom we may or may not have agreed politically, but no one comes to mind immediately who so visibly every day gives us all the signs that they might go as far as breaking that cherished norm of the peaceful transfer of power too. And it instills little faith in me when the president, uh, when he tweets out support for basically an armed militia group who have stormed a state capitol building, um, because there's a shelter-in-place order over a pandemic that's killed 50,000, 60,000 people or so um, already at this point. My my faith is, is low. This ties in, Jamie. Um, well, before we do that, let me ask you, um, do you have any closing thoughts for this segment before we move yeah. on to our second?
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've been watching, and I'm a poll watcher like one of the, I, I get up every morning and one of the first things I do is I go to the Real Clear Politics uh, latest poll page and just sort of scan through them to try to get a sense of, you know, the November election to be sure, but also just where sort of the 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 mood of the country is in, right? So whether it's, I, I tend to look at a lot of tracking polls on uh, on Congress and on the president and on parties, and right? And so one of the things that, that has been apparent really probably in the last three weeks, I would say is a definite sort of shift away from, from Trump, both in terms of, uh, approval numbers, right. A few weeks ago, he'd gotten that small bounce and gotten up to what 48, 49% approval rating in sort of at the very beginning of COVID and locking down. And mm-hmm. that has all receded now. And, In several battleground states, there has been a definite movement towards Joe Biden uh, in such a way that, as I understand it, uh, Brad Parscale, Donald Trump's manager, campaign manager, presented him with some internal polling this week that had him losing the presidency in November bad. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so there is part of what's going on here then is this effort to Right, so from the moment he was elected, there's always been this question: Well, is he going to try to unite the the country, or is he just going to sort of reach out to the, his thirty percent? Right, 30, 35 percent that's mm-hmm. diehard, right? Uh, and and so every time anything happened, the question was: Well, is he going to try to be a uniter, or is he just going to sort of crank it up to eleven on uh, on the thirty percent? And what you're seeing now, and what you're going to continue to see through November, if not longer is is trump trying to amp up his base right his 30 percent voters who edged him over the the goal line uh last november in november uh november 2016 and and he's he's got to depend on them to to do that again and so it's only going to get worse in between now and november I, of that i am certain and and I just think we should buckle up because I think it's going to be an incredibly bumpy ride from here on.
2: I would imagine that's right. I don't think there's any bar too low um, from what we've seen so far. I also want, I mean, you're bringing up of polls, reminds me quickly of um, polls have consistently shown, as far as I have seen, that the majority of Americans have supported precautions that are being taken to ensure the health and the safety of just the general public and the common good and i i think it is it's very important to point to incidents like we have today uh with the protesters in michigan the couple hundred folks who were there it is important to see that because i think it's important because it only takes a couple it only takes one or two people or a couple hundred people to to affect you know uh, national tragedies and things like that and so it is it is important to watch that but I also don't want to fall into the trap of, of seeming to suggest that there is a clear partisan divide between people who want to just throw open the doors of the economy and, and, and march back in and take off their masks and start throwing parties, you know, on the one side and, and, and another side that's more cautious and, you know, or, and, and wants to take this more seriously. I don't think that polling bears that out per se. I think, depending on the questions that you ask and how partisan you make it, I think I live in a pretty conservative area, and this reflects what I've seen in polling, that most people, white, where I live is a pretty strong black-white binary here, black and white, um, conservative Republicans, I'm sure many of who voted for Trump that I know and I know pretty well, um, have still shown a willingness to take the virus seriously and to take precautionary measures seriously for themselves, their families, their congregations, their churches, their businesses—they're feeling the pain. I'm sure they're antsy and and ready for this to be over with as much as anyone else is. But I, I just want to be careful not, in my words and in my focusing on the, what's happened in uh, Michigan, not to to paint with a wide brush, but to definitely hold those things in tension. To not to not give a free pass. And to minimize what's happened with the protest movements that we've seen in certain places, not just in Michigan, but but elsewhere, Wisconsin, Idaho, Washington, and other places. But to also say, these folks very well may still vote for Trump in November. I'm not saying their minds are changed, but that doesn't automatically equate to not caring about the, the common good. And so I want to give due diligence to that as well. Um, well, and let's,
0: let's be clear, Mark. You and I are from... Roughly the same, the same. Certainly, the same part of the country, and roughly the same part of the state. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't love some Republicans, like if we didn't, if we didn't love some real conservative folks, like half to three quarters of my family wouldn't be in my life. Right. <laughs> right. It, 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 even as we're having these conversations, like I don't care if somebody is a Republican or a Democrat or Independent or Libertarian, whatever. Right. You are who you are. This conversation, to me, is much more important because of the outcomes that we are getting from this certain fractional size of of a group, uh, and, and the degree to which they are being undergirded by this administration.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, that is
0: probably I and mean, has absolutely nothing to do with party affiliation.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I agree with that, Jamie. To wind down this segment, we'll pivot to the wonderful musical offering from leanne armstrong whose new song is titled not enough love in this world which reflects some of the conversations we've just finished up and it includes the following line old men in their 80s who don't trust the ladies no matter how gifted they are i thought was a wonderful line but it speaks to the chauvinism and the sexism demonstrated toward female leadership in our country Uh, In both political parties, actually, uh, Leanne's, the the verse, I'm taking that a bit out of context here because the verse was speaking to um, the Democratic Party's seeming inability to to really want to rally behind, you know, strong, capable, smart female candidates um, during this primary season. Uh, But it certainly speaks also to the distrust and the anger directed at Governor Gretchen Whitmer, both from President Trump and also from Michigan protesters. I think we see certainly, obviously, there are gender dynamics there as well that need to be paid attention to. But uh, agreeing with Leanne, there is not enough love in this world. And uh, so we want you listeners to enjoy uh, singer-songwriter Leanne Chambliss Armstrong of Alabama and the work that she has so generously shared with us and with you. Not it. Jamie, it's time we move into our second segment for today. This week, the Washington Post published an article in the transcript of an interview related to the financial status of historically black colleges and universities in light of the pandemic. The article stated that, quote, colleges and universities face revenue losses from a number of sources, from returning significant amounts of money to students for services they will no longer receive, such as room and board, and they are incurring increased expenses to shift from regular operations to online, end quote. Late last month, in one of the relief packages, a $2 trillion federal relief package was approved with a little more than $30 billion of it going to education. Institutions of higher education, the article goes on to say, will receive $14.3 billion of that total, 10% of which will be divided between historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs. Experts say that 10% is nowhere near enough to help HBCUs, many of which often struggle to have the full amount of resources they need, which speaks to a larger narrative of racial inequity in our country. HBCUs, like other smaller educational institutions, rely more on tuition for funding rather than having large endowments upon which they can draw. If a school has financial insecurity, then this can also threaten their accreditation status, which would obviously further hurt the school and their prospective enrollment numbers. Additionally, another source pointed out that given the major discrepancy in generational wealth between white and black families in our country, black college graduates typically have fewer funds to give back to their institutions as alums. Furthermore, HBCUs are expressing serious concern for the students and their abilities to study online, given that many of their students come from low-income backgrounds, and may be forced to return to homes without reliable technology and internet access. I've certainly seen that here in the Delta. Jeremy, a few questions here. First, we've been talking for weeks about how COVID is revealing socioeconomic inequities that folks living on the underside of our systems know full well, but which others may not have considered. How do you see this larger dynamic at play here with the concern for HBCUs?
0: Yeah, Wow. This has been on my radar for a little while, only because, as you know, my wife is a college professor. And so we've been sort of keeping up with, with the machinations of, of her university as they sort of try to figure out how to navigate this time. That being said, there is a degree to which, just like the healthcare system, just like the economic system, just like the political system, everything is being stripped at this moment right everything is being torn down to its very foundations and there's two ways that this can go right either we can as a people as a society say we value education in such a way that we are going to spend what needs to be spent in order to make sure colleges and universities don't have to Choose to stay open or not stay open, right? So there is there's a there's a macro level conversation to be had there, and at the same time, uh, with 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 the HBCUs, I read a couple articles about this today, and and one of them, one of the folks I interviewed said, "When America gets the cold, African Americans get the flu." Mm,
2: yeah, yeah, right. And so that's
0: that is much of what is going on. Here as well, right? So academia writ large is is having a tough time right now and trying to figure out how to sort of weather this storm, whether to open up next in the fall semester and and be all online, be half online, be all in person. Like nobody sort of knows what that looks like right now. That goes tenfold for HBCUs, because they don't have the sorts of uh, underlying funding that the the Harvards or the Yales or the Princetons or the Browns of the world have, or even the Davidsons and Dukes. And honestly, I mean, my alma mater, Clemson, there's no danger of any of those colleges ceasing to exist because of a bad semester or a bad two semesters. Uh there is a huge concern with a lot of these smaller liberal arts schools and HBCUs who don't have the sort of financial backing either from alums or large endowments that can help them weather the storms or or lots of resources built up within their infrastructure right mm-hmm. so one of the examples they gave was of i think it was Bethune-Cookman had just taken out uh, like a $206 million loan to build a new set of dorm rooms, which are now going to sit empty for at least a semester, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. that That is poor, <laughs> that's poor timing, right? It's nobody's fault. It just, it, it is poor timing for it to happen like that. And, and so there really is a sense in which academia and the educational system writ large is being torn down to its bare bones and there really ought to be a conversation about, do we want to build it up the way it was before? Because the way it was before is fundamentally askew, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You and I both have lots and lots of friends who are on the adjunct circuit, right? Where they teach at four, uh, four or five different institutions, one class, right? They make $25,000 a year, maybe. They have no sorts of benefits from that, and but they're living their dream, <laughs> <laughs> right the movement in academia in the, over the past 10 15 20 years has been so skewed towards getting away from tenure track professors and moving towards adjunct professors that you can pay next to nothing uh, and still get garner the same sorts of results right and so that is right there there's a fundamental issue there and there's also this uh, Again, this underlying economic issue that is writ large across these historic black colleges and universities. And, and both of those conversations are important to have and they both lead to the same place, I think. But folks need to be willing to have them and not try to sort of kick the last couple of months under the, the kitchen rug and pretend like it didn't happen, which is what I'm, which is my chief concern the two months from now we're going to pretend like none of this ever happened and we're just going to go back to living our blissfully ignorant lives yeah
2: yeah i'll, I'll drop in some personal experiences here the first of all i was i just tweeted the other day that i was um i was a bit salty about having a phd and also four employers <laughs> from, from that perspective of uh and by which I mean, I, I teach for three different institutions in various capacities, and um, and then also my my job here in the Delta, and and yes, the teaching is is a labor of love. So is the job here in the Delta, but just that's that's a whole thing. I'll set that to the side. I've also noticed so part of my work here in the Delta, it has uh, led me to be pretty involved in the public school system, uh, in our in our this the town in which I live. And the public school system up and down the Delta is synonymous with the African-American community. Um, the segregation here is still almost 100% in that there are private segregation academies that popped up back in the late sixties and early seventies. And the majority of the white f- families and students, um, if they are still in the, if they are still in a Delta town, many of them are, are, are almost all of them attend the private Academy or the Christian Academy um, that's almost synonymous with the white community goes to the private academy and the public school systems are almost 100 percent black. That includes faculty and administration, teachers, administration as well. So that being said, I, I see that play out. And I know in Louisiana, I know the significance and the importance of HBCUs for students coming out of our out of the public school system here. Those would be schools like Grambling, uh, Southern University schools that are not exactly in the Delta, but Northwestern on the, on the Western side of our state, uh, Alcorn state over in Mississippi and the, uh, but that's close to the river in the Mississippi side of the Delta. These are places where our students here in the Delta can go and can continue to see faculty and student bodies that look like the ones that they came from and they can be affirmed in their identity and their background and they can be given opportunities uh, that they have earned and that they de- that they deserve to uh, to receive a quality education and and I know that the sense of pride and the sense of importance that HBCUs have uh, for communities like the ones here in the Delta um, and I, I see it every day. I know the importance of it that there. It is not the case that all as many listeners will know this will not be new to them, but it is not the case that all students across our country grow up and go to these wonderfully segregated um, public schools (laughs) and then they'll go on to the, I'm I'm sorry, these wonderfully integrated public schools and then go on to wonderfully integrated colleges and universities. That's not true. That's not the case in all places. It's not true here in the Delta. The opportunities and the experiences that are afforded to the children who are growing up in these communities are different based on the color of their skin and the schools that they attend. And so with that, HBCUs play a critical role. And it's one that I've learned to see and appreciate more. I'm a white man, clearly, uh, but I can see that and I've seen the impact that it has on our students and their abilities to to achieve their goals and their dreams and to to have that to receive an education that's culturally responsive um, and that is affirming both for them at the K-12 level, but then also at uh there at the at the college, at the undergraduate and graduate levels as well. Uh, along with that, I did, well, first of all, I've seen some of the students that I've known who have graduated here who have, who have come back and who have landed back again in Lake Providence. And I can know I can, I can attest to the difficulty that that they are having to um, Lake Providence, the, the poverty levels here are very high. They're 50, sixty percent, 63 percent of our children live in poverty. And so for them to be out and to be at an HBCU, but then to have to come back, to finish their semester in a place where poverty levels are so high and public libraries are shut down, internet access is unreliable. Obviously, these things are going to be very difficult for their students and their children when they come back um, if they were, you know, obviously we're not able to finish the semester. So, these these issues are real, and I see them playing out here. And Jamie, just to step back from the the personal and the local here, it reminds me of conversations we've had in previous weeks where we have talked about uh, some of the stimulus money that has come through that has been more readily accessible to large corporations, um, some multinational corporations and others who've been able to jump in and get some of this funding more easily than your local mom and pop stores or institutions or organizations that are needing help in this time. And so it does, it reminds me of those conversations Um, It reminds me also of conversations that I've had this week with clergy from across the state of Louisiana who've gotten together with a a community organizing group. It's a faith-based community organizing group called Together Louisiana. Um, And we were gathering and and preparing for some actions that we're going to take. And a pastor, African-American pastor, brought up the same themes um, that we're addressing here about what it means to reimagine our economy and hearing from from clergy all across the state, hearing them echo the concerns that we have shared. Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi are not that different, but Louisiana is a very poor state um, nationally ranked in the state. A lot of your deep south states are. Uh, and so they there's a shared sense of concern um, from this group that it gathers over 130 clergy members from across the state and got together for this Zoom call. Um, and to hear them talk about the possibilities and and their dreams and hopes for rebuilding a more equitable and a more just economy in Louisiana uh, is certainly, it it brought our conversations um, into a certain light in in another way, and to see this being shared by other folk um, from Jewish and Christian communities and Islamic communities as well were represented on this call. And that's just, it's very heartening in that respect. And I see the work and the and the time and the effort that it's taking to organize communities and organize congregations and, and folk to to make this work possible um, that we're talking about doing over the, you know, in the coming months and years as we try to recover from this and, and to try to rebuild and hopefully rebuild in a better way. Uh, Jamie, do you have any closing co- uh, thoughts or, or comments for us?
0: Yeah, to bring it back around to, I guess, where we started and really the conversation we've been having the, the last few weeks, these sorts of structural and, and honestly just perspectival uh, ways of, of, of looking at this issue or these collection of issues, the only way that the change and and newness and 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 hope and light are going to emerge from these different sorts of Bleak situations that we just see popping up in every segment that we thought we, we were at least ignorant was was problematic, right? We all these issues are popping up now, and it, to me, it is on. You know, I I work in a church, and to me, it is on folks in the church to push that conversation forward mm-hmm. to. Uh, to be a prophetic voice in this time, because honest to goodness, there may not be another chance in our lifetimes to to have all these different systems just sort of torn down to their bare bones and, and being in need of being rebuilt, right? So yeah. there just may not be this sort of wide open opportunity to engage in difficult conversations about fairness and equality and justice sort of across the board. And to me, if, if we as the church, capital C Church, pass on this, then there really is no reason for us to be open anymore. This to me is the opportunity that, that, that we have to, to make fundamental changes that make the, the realm of God a greater reality for folks. And man, if we pass on that, I just don't know what we're doing here anymore.
2: That's right. And, and to listeners, if you, if you don't know or you're curious to learn more about efforts like this that are most likely happening around where you are, um, if you're in the South or elsewhere, uh, start doing some research look into it ask other clergy that you might know or we shared an interview with the highlander research center um a few weeks ago and that's a lot of what they do is both to provide educational opportunities and training opportunities for groups who are organizing across the south um i've mentioned the work with together louisiana here i know there are similar state level organizations in other places um we have uh, on our website we have given um we, we profiled the, the work of song southerners on new ground and they engage in similar types of work it is happening out there in the south and this type of work does exist and if it doesn't in your community then you can be the one to to start it or get connected uh with your with your congregation or or, or, or whatever community that makes sense for you um in in other ways but it's it, it does. It takes time and it takes gathered people to, to realize their strength and to get engaged and know that you're not alone out there. If you're wanting to do that, um, it can feel that way and it can feel big and, and a little scary sometimes, at least for me coming from my background. Um, but I'm always um, encouraged by the, the congregations and the clergy folk who I do see who who take that kind of work seriously and are willing to to do the legwork and um, the the tiring and the wearisome legwork that it can take, but to do that and to 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 make the moves and to combine with one another, and uh, and to put pressure in the right places and to to have hope and to be beacons of of what it means to 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 think new of new ways to be a community and to be together. Um, I know that just talking about it doesn't make it so. So find some way to engage and get involved and realize that there's there is something deeply beautiful and deeply theological about that and that um, there are ways to do that so i encourage myself and you all and others to to find ways to get involved and to to make to start doing the the work to accomplish what it is that we're we're yearning for and hoping for before we close out this section um, i do want to return briefly to the plight of hbcu so i want to point our listeners to the thurgood marshall college fund which has created a COVID relief fund to assist students and institutions in need. These are HBCU students and institutions that are in need to learn more about how to contribute to this fund. They do not ask us to do this. This is something I saw today and, and found and respect. Uh, please, if you want to learn more about this, uh, please send an email to emergency at TMCF.org. Again, that's emergency at TMCF.org. If you want to read more, before reaching out, which is certainly understandable, just Google search the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, and you might want to throw COVID in there as well, and you can get some great resources and see a couple of great one-pagers of of what this is, and it covers a lot of the material that we've covered. But if that is something on your heart, and if you want to find ways to help um, reach out or, or check out the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. Jamie, it's now time for our front porch musings or time when you and I share something that has touched our hearts or that we found interesting that may not be national headline news. So imagine this is a warm spring evening. May has finally arrived. The armed protesters have gotten off your lawn and you go out to sit on your front porch to muse a bit. What are you musing about this week, Jamie?
0: Mark, I am so excited that this week. I'm not talking about somebody who died. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah yeah.
0: The last week or so I have been wrapping up a show that I'm a little late to get on board with. I will admit. Um uh, but I've been watching the the three seasons of the show Deadwood. Oh, okay. And it is uh it's on HBO or it was on HBO, I should say. Uh it is fabulous. And it is uh it has served as a way for me to sort of mentally check out for a little while and, and, and go back to another time in history. And the, the dialogue is I I think on par with probably the first four seasons of the West wing. And if you know me, you know, that is as high praise as I can give. It's fundamentally different from that. Don't don't get me wrong. But if you, I will say that if you are looking for a way to uh, kill, I don't know, thirty-six hours or so of uh, uh, of time over the next however long this uh, this this lockdown stays in place, I would highly recommend David Milch's Deadwood. It is so incredibly well done, uh, and and so I will just that that has. Uh, that has given me a space to have some degree of joy because I've been able to check out mentally for, you know, clips at a time. And so I, I, I bring that to you as being uh, a fabulous show that has brought me much joy this week and I'll pass
2: it off to you. Awesome. Awesome. I have not watched that. I've heard good things, never watched it. I'll have to check that out too. My musing this week uh, is, is, is back on COVID. Um, I should have picked something else cause Lord knows I need to check out um, a little bit. And I do, I do trust me. But, um, there's a, there's a podcast that's just starting to come out, uh, that I wanted to, to talk about and to share. It's called in the dark. This is their third season that's coming out. Um, listeners, you may have maybe familiar with it. I'm not sure. The second season, uh, covered the harassment and the multiple attempts to convict African-American Curtis Flowers of Winona, Mississippi. I know that case has gotten some attention in the last year or so. Um, so in the dark in their second season gave a pretty in-depth coverage of that, uh, of that case or the, that almost 20 year case that was continuing to go on. Um, but this season, their third season has just started to come out. I think one episode is available so far and it's right now, at least it's, it's in, it's based in the Mississippi Delta and they're covering Greenville, Mississippi. Uh, Greenville is smack dab in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. And it's about an hour from where I live in Lake Providence. Um, it's it along with Vicksburg, which is another Delta city um, it, on the Mississippi side. They are one of, they are probably the closest urban centers to me. They're an hour away. Um, Green, I mean, Greenville is not a large, you know, sprawling urban city by any means. But it's uh, compared to the town of 3000 people where I live, it's a larger city. Um, So it's covering just how COVID is hitting this um, predominantly black Delta town and Delta area on the Mississippi side. And I just want to lift that up, one, because um, it's important and the stories that they're good storytellers and I appreciate the work of the podcast. But two, very rarely have I heard much in popular media uh, that that gets that digs into the Delta and gives a lot of um, anything really current that's going on here. So it's, uh, it's easy to live in the Delta and to feel isolated and to feel that there's not uh, ever really much of a media um, spotlight that gets turned to us into the, the very real levels of, 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 suffering and pain that are here. Um, and, and the beauty that's here and the perseverance and the grit and whatnot that's also here. Um, so I'm excited to see what they do with their coverage and if, if they stay in Greenville, if they go outside of it, but, uh, It's a lovely place. Uh, My heart is is very fond of the Delta, and I'm glad to see the Delta get some coverage. And I encourage people to go and check out uh, uh, this podcast. It is In the Dark. Um, Check out their previous seasons as well. uh, But this third season that's just beginning to come out is covering uh, the Mississippi Delta area and how COVID is affecting communities like ours here.
0: That's great. I I enjoy that podcast immensely. So I appreciate you bringing that this week because it is – Yeah, the first two seasons were fabulous. Especially the second season was was just outstanding. Yeah,
2: yeah. And let me nerd out here for a minute. Anybody who knows me and follows me on social media will know that I like to get out and photograph wildlife in the area, including alligators. And I am in Greenville, Mississippi a good bit because south of Greenville, there is a wildlife refuge, which is just a huge block of public land that's been set aside for preservation and other things, but it, it largely functions. Um, it's mostly used by hunters who like to go out and hunt, but there are some walking trails and paths and there's a place. Um, this is again, th- this is in ya- the Yazoo w- National Wildlife Refuge, South of Greenville, about 30 miles. And they have the best gator, uh, photography you could ever imagine if you ever even imagined that that was a thing and it is. So uh, i got to shout out Greenville. That's that's my connection there. Um, we'll head down to Yazoo and then head back up to Greenville. And it's just as good a time as you're going to have in the Delta. I can tell you that. All right, good, sir. That's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for your time, Jamie.
0: Mark, it's been a pleasure.
2: And if you're listening along, thank you for joining us. Please hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening and leave a five-star ranking. Remember that you can find all of our written work on Facebook, Twitter, and at ProgressiveSouthernTheologians.com. Friends, y'all take care, Jamie, you take care, and we'll be back with you next week.